This talk by John Sutherland, called Teachers, Lineage and Tradition, is the third of four talks given at the Desert Rain Retreat on March 1st, 2012, in Tucson, Arizona. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Good evening. Um, tomorrow we have a ceremony for making a new teacher in Tenny. Um, our traditional formulation for such an event is congratulations and condolences. <laughs> and so tonight I wanted to speak some about teachers and tradition and lineage and all those kinds of things because I know for a lot of people that's going to be a new subject or at least new as far as our school is concerned. So I wanted to, to sort of lay, throw down a few facts and then really open it up first for um, Andrew if there's anything he, as a teacher that he wants to say. Tenny is on his last night of freedom if there's anything <laughs> he, he wants to say. Uh, and then open it up to the group for conversation and any kinds of questions, either of the, gee, I always wondered why X variety, or of the, what the heckity heck is going on variety. Any, anything is, is open for that um, conversation tonight. Um, so I wanted to begin with, with why we have teachers, at least in our school, and I'm only going to be speaking from that perspective because... Um, Buddhism and even Zen are big tents with a lot of different ways of doing things and different attitudes towards things that um, would would take a lot of time to do justice to. So I'm going to focus on meanings and intentions within our own koan school um, that began in China about 1,300 years ago, uh, flourished there, moved to Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and then eventually uh, to the West, to Australia, Hawaii, North and South America, and Europe. Teachers are particularly important in, in, the, in a koan school um, because there's so much of koan practice that happens in that relationship in work in the room. And those of you who've come into a koan school having been somewhere else will have, many people have remarked on that, on the difference. It's a very intimate relationship, that between teachers and students. Um, students meaning koan students, as, you know, as much as anything else, more perhaps than students of a, a particular teacher. And there's a great deal of our tradition that is passed on orally. Um, you definitely can't do koan study from a book by yourself. You just can't. I mean, it would be so wonderful if you could because it would make this way accessible to so many other people. So I'm sort of for it in concept, but it really doesn't work. And the reason being that the koan is not just those printed words on a page that you can read and understand. The koan is the experience of living with a koan, everything that happens with that. Not only your experience, but the experience of everyone who has ever lived with that koan, kept company with it. So the field of each koan keeps growing and growing and growing as more and more people take it up. Some of those other experiences we know explicitly, 
which is why we have things like koan salons where we get together and speak about koans so that we can hear other people's responses because that's so valuable. Um, There's so much more that a koan can reveal than any individual heart-mind can imagine. And so it's important to have the relationships with our um, fellow pilgrims on the way so that we can hear their experiences and be enriched by them as well. And also so that we have relationships with teachers who have absorbed and are transmitting the cumulative wisdom of a tradition 1,300 years old. That's a lot of stuff, you know? And as I say, a lot of that gets passed down orally, and you couldn't, you couldn't find it if you, if you wanted to, because it's um, ear-to-ear, uh, mouth-to-ear, mouth-to-ear, yeah. all, all the way down. And all of that is uh, grounded in one of the deepest and most um, um, meaningful understandings of the tradition, which is that awakening happens in relationship. Awakening is not an event that belongs to you, to an individual heart-mind. Awakening is an event that belongs to the world. Each of us is part of the world's awakening from the moment we're born till the moment we die and probably after that. And um, without relationship, there is no true awakening. There might be insight, there might be understanding, but not awakening. That's a communal event. And we need each other. Um, Not only each other in terms of the Sangha or in terms of teachers, any, I'll, I'll talk in a minute about all the kinds of relationships which we now recognize as being part of our, um, our sense of lineage, which is no longer a sort of narrow line through history, but a kind of broad field, and includes so many other people and also many non-human things as well. Um, but the thing that is valuable about our Sangha relationships and valuable about our student-teacher relationships is that they are particularly focused on that awakening. They're particularly organized around that awakening. That's a very precious thing in life. Awakening can happen anywhere and does. Moments of awakening, openings, can happen anywhere in any kind of relationship. But here we have these relationships whose purpose is that, whose focus is that. And um, that's, that's not to be um, minimized, I think. So having said that, I also recognize that some of that goes directly against the very strong streak of anti-authoritarianism in, um, in American culture. Um, and, I, and so I want to I address that a little bit because I think it's really important. The, um, the, the good side, the positive side of, of that anti-authoritarian, anti-authoritarianism <laughs> is um, that we don't give ourselves away so easily that we give our faith in something with care, 
and after um, thought and investigation. And also that we strongly recognize the ways in which we're teaching each other all the time. The not-so-good side of the anti-authoritarianism is that we can deny um, the wisdom and the skills of people who actually have wisdom and skills based on sort of stances we take or principles we maintain and thereby missing the living truth of the wisdom and skills that, um, that could otherwise be available to us. And that kind of anti-authoritarianism on principle um, is a stance it's an opinion. It's the opposite of Lin Ji's true persons of no rank. It's a person with a lot of rank going on, a, <laughs> right? A lot of um, sense of um, position and, and viewpoint and hierarchy. Um, and I think I would say kind of simply out of my own experience as a student, not as a teacher, um, in response to that, sort of idealistic anti-authoritarianism, anti-authoritarianism as a principle, if someone knows more about something that I care deeply about, why would I not want to learn that from them? Mm -hmm. If my allegiance is to that thing I care about above any stances or opinions or viewpoints I might have, um, why on earth wouldn't I want to learn from someone who knows more about something that really matters to me. Um, So we don't have to abandon either the good aspects or the less good aspects of anti-authoritarianism. We can bring them together into a a third thing, which is the kind of um, koan move. You've got A and B, start looking for C. (laughs) Because... um, the koans will never ask you to choose between A and B. They will invite you to look for the C that includes both A and B. So if we take up this, this um, question from that perspective, we might say that C is something like not taking a stance, not taking a predetermined um, viewpoint on this, but inquiring deeply. That's how that anti-authoritarianism can really serve us to the extent that it fuels an inquiry. So um, let me give an an example that's that's been important to me. Um, I think any fair-minded person looking at the arc of this tradition would say that for the, the overwhelming majority of the time, there's been a a fairly significant gender imbalance um, in, in, the, in the tradition. Um, so what do you do with that? You can repudiate the tradition. You can say, you know, this is fundamentally corrupt and I want nothing to do with it and walk away from it. And a lot of people do that. Um, or you can use that inquiry to become more intimate with the tradition, to ask the question, Is this gender imbalance inherent to the tradition? Or is it a result of, you know, causes and conditions of of circumstances? And could we say that it's um, the result of an imperfect understanding of the tradition? 
which then immediately invites us to help complete an incomplete tradition. So we've moved from a sort of knee-jerk repudiation of something because it's incomplete to viewing that incompletion as an invitation to help complete. Um, and, And I will remind all of us that one of the things we've talked about is that dukkha, you know, in the first noble truth of Buddhism, life is dukkha, that dukkha might be translated as incompleteness rather than as suffering. That in some ways that's a more accurate translation. And if we think of life as incompleteness, then again we are offered the invitation to, first of all, not repudiate anything for being incomplete, because after all, that is the nature of life in this world, right? So we'd have to repudiate everything um, (laughs) if if we're starting to repudiate incompletenesses. And then second, to view it as an invitation to participate, to put our hands in, to help move it toward completion. Um, We're never going to get there since the nature of life is incompleteness, but we can take part in the creative process of dreaming something on. Um, and I want to say that, that for me, this, is, this has been really important, really a guiding principle as a teacher when I'm talking about not having any guiding principles. This is my um, non-guiding principle, guiding principle. <laughs> when, when I contemplate a change... I'm never looking to make a change to make the tradition more relevant to the present time. Do you remember when that was the big deal? It's not relevant. <laughs> okay. Always, 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 it's to become more intimate with the true ancient spirit of the tradition as best I can understand it, and then discover what its present expression is. So... What, how do we express in these lives, with these hands, with these words, with the language we speak, with the cultures we share, how do we express the spirit of this ancient thing, much older than Buddhism, you know, much older than humans, probably. Um, and when I'm thinking about the incompleteness of things and the incompleteness of the tradition, and how wrong we get it. We sure have a lot of examples of how wrong we've gotten it. Um, I remember two things. The first is from my dear friend Stephen Karcher, who is a genius with the I Ching, um, the Book of Changes, the Chinese Book of Changes. And he, um, he told me once that he thought, we were talking about how Trans, uh, how traditions move and how they have their own fate and they kind of engineer their own fate. And he and I was saying I thought the koans did that. And he said that he thought the I Ching did too and that um, they hitched a ride on Richard Wilhelm's back because he was the, um, he was the, the Westerner who happened to be on the spot at the time and rode Wilhelm into the West um, in the form of his translation of the Book of Changes and where it just exploded and, and, and took on a whole new life. 
And um, I find this salutary to remember that, that in some ways I'm really nothing more than a handy beast of burden for something much larger than, than I am. Um, and the second thing I always remember when um, feeling snarky about my ancestors sometimes is um, I, I will try to treat them with the same generosity with which I hope my descendants treat me because heaven knows I'm going to need it. Okay. So I wanted to um, to actually do a little sort of just technical stuff about teachers in our school because that may not be apparent or known to you. Um, Tenny is becoming a sensei. Andrew became a sensei last year. Sarah Bender is also a sensei in our school. She's in Colorado Springs um, with Andrew. And um, a sensei is a it's a Japanese word and it means firstborn. And the sense of it is in a in a Confucian culture where birth order and things like that are important. Um, to call someone firstborn is like calling them elder brother or elder sister. So that's the that's the closest correspondence I can get to what a sensei is. It's elder brother or elder sister. And that kind of expresses beautifully the very old Buddhist idea of the Kalyana Mitra, the spiritual friend, the person who is um, perhaps a little bit further along the path, but walking with you and um, helping you from from that position. So um, a sensei, what a sensei has received is authorization to teach from a roshi. And those are the two kinds of teachers, senseis and roshis. Um, a roshi, me, a roshi, the word roshi means um, old teacher, which I love because I feel like a really old teacher <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, I sort you know, I can daughter a little bit. Um, and while, while a sensei has received authorization to teach from a roshi, a roshi has received transmission from another roshi. Um, in the old days, we used to think of transmission as being the passing on of what we call the mind seal of the Buddha from generation to generation to generation in, a, in an unbroken line. Um, I would say today we think, those, those of us who are not as keen on mythologizing, <laughs> Think of transmission as a recognition of um, as of a depth of understanding from one teacher to another, and a kind of saying, "Yeah, okay, I entrust the tradition to you." Um, it might surprise those of you who don't know it that my actually my only responsibility as a roshi, the only thing I absolutely have to do is pass the tradition on to another generation. Everything else, every act of teaching, all this blah, blah, blah tonight and every other night, all of that work in the room, all of it is extra from the position of the tradition. The only thing that matters is that it be transmitted to another generation. Okay, so that, um, that brings us to the, the question of lineage. <laughs> and... The mythology of Zen is that there is this unbroken lineage 
that begins at Shakyamuni and comes all the way down through all the generations for 2,500 years into this room um, in, in this form at the moment. Um, when, when you become, when you receive transmission, when you become a Roshi, you make what's called a Kechimiyaku, which is um, a chart that begins with a circle representing the vastness at the top, emptiness at the top. And then the first name is Shakyamuni Buddha. And then you have the names of all the teachers going like this in a kind of snake pattern down this chart, all the way down to your teacher's name. And then your teacher adds your name at the bottom of it. And once you've written everybody's name out, which is in and of itself a wonderful exercise, actually, mm-hmm. you then take um, a red, I, in my case I've brought an ink, a brush full of red ink, and you make a line through all the names. That's the bloodline. Mm-hmm. that's continuous from the vastness through Shakyamuni, through all the teachers of India, all the teachers of China, all the teachers of Japan, and the, now the teachers of the West. Also a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something very beautiful and very pure about that, and it's also completely a fiction. <laughs> and that's important too. <laughs> it's a beautiful myth, it's an inspiring myth, and it ain't true. Um, I think I stopped feeling quite as warmly toward lineage when I learned that the Chan um, teachers, the Chan masters of the Sung dynasty, deliberately wrote out all of the women of the Tang dynasty from the lineage. They just went through and erased all the women's names. And at that point I thought, you know what? <laughs> um, I think this, you know, this is, this is something, but it's not history. That's for sure. And I'm not even sure it's my lineage anymore. So the question becomes, if it's not a, a true historical record, does it matter? And I would still answer, yes, it matters tremendously. Um, one, of the, one of the ways it matters to me most is um, when I know that someone is part of a lineage, I know that they didn't just make it up last week. You know? <laughs> and that's important to me. It may or may not be important to you, but it's important to me. I like the sense that there is something that has been not only transmitted through generations, but digested through generations, that has worked in generations, that has been refined um, and, and understood more deeply through the generations. So, what is it? If it's not the mind seal of the Buddha, maybe, that's transmitted, and it's not this perfect, unbroken lineage that's transmitted. What is it that gets transmitted? There's a um, historian named um, Leon Weisseltier who said, I think my favorite thing on this, on this um, question, he said, tradition is not reproduced. It is thrown and it is caught. It lives a long time in the air. Mm-hmm. And each of those pieces is so important. Tradi- tradition is not reproduced. It is thrown and it is caught. It lives a long time in the air. Um, 
tradition can't be reproduced because this moment is not that moment. I mean, as simple as that. If what we're talking about is a sense of living a life vivid in each moment as it arises, we cannot reproduce tradition. That was that was that time and place. Those that was those circumstances. This is something different and we have to discover what the tradition is here. And fortunately, that's easy to do because it is still alive. Um, it's alive right now in this moment and what we have to do is discover it. I was speaking last night about how what a koan does is not add something to you, not hand you something, but allow you to discover something already true inside yourself that hasn't yet been visible. It's the same thing with tradition. It is already here. When the light travels across continents and seas and mountain ranges and deserts and lands in a room like this, it lands in a room already full of light. And our task in this room is to find, again, what is the radiant expression in this time and this place of that ancient spirit. Um, on a more, on a more sort of, you know, on the end where the dog becomes more and more the dog. <laughs> I've been talking on the end where the, and things become more and more empty. There was um, a, a great Japanese teacher of the medieval period named Muso Soseki, and this was the time when, when um, Chan was being transmitted to Japan and becoming Zen. And he absolutely forbade his Japanese students to go to China, saying quite simply, if, it is, if Zen is not here, it is nowhere. So find it here. And um, I find in myself, although I went to Japan, um, a, great, you know, a great affinity with, with Musou's uh, take on that. Um, okay, so then it spends a long time in the air. One of the, the great joys in my life um, is to feel as though I have lived through the time when Chan and Zen were spending a long time in the air. And I'm, it looks like I'm going to live long enough to see it land. Mm-hmm. And that is tremendously um, full, of, full of joy for me. As it, as it moves um, through the air... Things get added and things fall away, and I want to keep um, I want to keep talking a little bit about that that idea of the Kechimiyaku, the 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 bloodline that that used to be the single pure line that ran through the ancestors. As that idea falls away, something else takes its place, which is that we begin to see the the. Um, the lineage, not as a single line of one ancestor and one descendant and then another descendant and another descendant, which leaves out so much, but we begin to see it as a field, a constantly growing and changing field through time. And that means that we can add people to the lineage. We can add Pongling Zhao, who... Um, when she sees her father trip, throws herself down next to him and says, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. 
We get to add, if the lineage is a field, we get to add her because she's part of our field for sure. If the lineage is a field and not this pure line, Tenny gets to add his poet ancestors, you know, which, which he's going to give us a beautiful taste of tomorrow night. I mean, we get to include um, Keats and Stevens and Dickinson and Whitman as part of our, our lineage field as well, and that's a beautiful thing. We get to remember that in the very origin story of our tradition, the story of Shakyamuni under that tree 2,500 years ago, he is not the, the, the terminus, the grand central <laughs> bodhisattva, you know, where everything started. Do, do you remember what happened? The morning star arose. And it was, in, it was in the shining of the morning star into his eye that the star in his eye woke up. So from the very origin story of our tradition, we are also including in our lineage the non-human. We are also including those things like that morning star that are constantly waking us up. So we have... Um, the beautiful story of Linyun, who is wandering through the mountains, I think probably on the way toward being open, because he's kind of gormless, you know, and kind of wandery and not really paying too much attention. And he comes around a bend in the mountains and looks across the valley and sees a, um, a peach tree in full blossom. Boom! You know, that's Tathagata, right? Boom! Just like that, that peach tree. And um, and it says that... The, um, the peach tree was completely unaware of its color, but it freed Linyun from all his doubts. Mm-hmm. And a later, um, a later teacher, Linyun was Chinese, a later Japanese teacher asked a great question, which is, if, if, if Linyun was awakened by peach blossoms, why is he not a successor to peach blossoms? Mm-hmm. And we would say, indeed he is. Mm-hmm. And if we have this sense of the lineage as a field, we include the peach blossoms, as well as the morning star, as well as Panlin Jiao, as well as Dickinson. You know, we include all of that in this field. Um, okay, so then, what a lot of blah, blah, blah. I have more to say than I thought about this. The last, the last thing I want, I want to just maybe touch on is um, that the last bit of the quote about um, it is, it is, th- or the middle, middle bit, it is thrown and it is caught. Um, as a teacher, when I read that, I had a sense of being, you know, playing like deep center field. And um, the second baseman, you know, so there's a crack, crack off the bat, and the second baseman turns around and says, Yours! <laughs> Me? <laughs> and I put my mitt up and womp, you know, tennis womp. The ball, the ball is in the mitt, and it's mine, and now I have to figure out what to do about it. And it has that quality, you know, it had really me, mine? Um, and now what? And now what? And now what? And that is the endless question. Mm-hmm. But that's that's something that's not true only of teachers. In some ways, each of us um, is thrown our practice, and each of us decides whether to catch it or not. We talked last night about um, about Suzuki, DT Suzuki, saying 
that Zen is a document we receive at birth and spend our lifetimes trying to understand. In the same way, our practice is something that is thrown, tossed to us, thrown to us, and, but in a million different ways, by teachers, by our Sangha members, by peach blossoms and, and uh, morning stars. And it is our choice whether to catch it or not. And we make that choice over and over and over again. And sometimes, even having caught it, we let it fall for a while. We drop it. Um, and that's important to pay attention to. How is it that we catch it? How is it that we drop it sometimes? And what does it mean to pick it up again? We have been tossed this remarkable gift by very generous ancestors. And I hope that each of us feels a living relationship with that and a desire to, um, to keep catching over and over and over again what is tossed to us and to keep discovering not only what it means to hold it, but what it means to throw it on ourselves. Because we all do that. We all catch and we all throw. And maybe teachers are just people who stand in the field along with everyone else but have agreed to make sure that the ball gets tossed and the ball gets caught and the ball gets thrown on. And if we can look kindly on that role and that decision, um, I think that's a good thing for all of us. So, enough. And um, I'll ask Andrew if you have anything you want to add to that. First, the... um <laughs> the tossing in the air for a while it reminded me of this silly little thing that my dad taught me that I've been trying to teach Ian some time ago and we'll see what happens I don't know if anybody else has ever done the, the finger throwing game where you do this and you throw it up and catch it <laughs> throw it up, catch it <laughs> and I can throw it over there and Catch it, Denny. There you go. <laughs> that's what came to mind for me. Because when we throw it and you catch it, it's always your finger. <laughs> so there's that, oh, I thought it was silly, but there might be something in- interesting there. <laughs> Every time you catch it, you have to use your finger. So, uh, Juji. <laughs> there he lives again. Um, just briefly what I'd say is that um, a couple, maybe even the first month or so after my ceremony last year, <clears throat> I went out to uh, a Unitarian church, and there was people there who weren't practicing Zen, but were studying a variety of religions, and I was asked to come speak. And I explained the kind of things that we do <clears throat> and what our practice is. And this... Um, young woman said, so you're a teacher? I said, yes. And she goes, so what do you teach? After everything I said, and I didn't get 
the disconnect is like, well, and I explained again, we sit down, we look at these things together, this and that, and she goes, okay, but what do you teach? <laughs> and it wasn't until afterwards I realized what she was asking. So I don't know what I teach. I don't teach anything, I don't think. <laughs> what I do is I am curious about something. And I look into it and discover some stuff. And then I share that with others and invite them to be curious along with me. Like, What do you think about this? I think that's all I'm ever doing is sharing my curiosity and inviting, encouraging your own curiosity in it. And likewise, that's the great gift that I've found of being a teacher is that everybody else's curiosity they come to me with a question thinking I can answer it. But I can't. All I can do is join them in their curiosity. So each one that comes forward, they're curious about something. I get to be curious as well, and I get to learn more because of that. And I think that's the, the great thing. That's the relationship aspect. We don't do this alone. It's not something that someone has and gives to another. It's how can we all have those eyes can we share those eyes to look and those heart minds that are curious and inquisitive and inquiring into things and walk together forward? I think that's really what I've, uh, it's been a treasure of this teaching. And the last thing I'd say about ancestors and lineage is it's always been a, um, a strong calling to me, our ancestors. And I think, you know, in the beginning it was because they sounded like they were pretty cool reading those books. They had these <laughs> wild things to say that seemed quite mysterious. But not too mysterious that I was put off. I wanted a taste of it, I suppose. <laughs> what I've found and what I keep finding, the more I take up studying ancestors, looking at their lives, is how much we have in common. How much they are just like me. They were humans, just like me, living a life with the same uh, curiosities and struggles and, you know, completely different culture, different time, different particulars, but underneath it, there's this same bond that we share. So it's the same kind of walking forward together that I experience with all of you and people living today that I experienced with the ancestors in that great field that you spoke of. Mm -hmm. It's not, again, not going there to get something. It's let's go join hands and, and walk down this path. And I think we have something we can teach them too. The, 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 the ancestors learn from us as we carry it forward. Do you, have you noticed how they get wiser and wiser the more, <laughs> the more, the more time we, we spend with them? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I think that's all I'll say. Thank you. That was well said. Thanks. Tenny? Yeah, I'll say a couple, couple of things on just what Andrew was saying about the, the ancestors. And, I mean, it's certainly true that working with Cohen's, there are a lot of moments where you say, that was a really different world, or I don't know that reference, or I have no idea what that image is, and so on. But if I compare it to, I don't know, like reading 
12th century scholastic philosophy or something. I mean, there, there's something so immediate about it and such a sense that so much of that is so contemporary and that you don't have to work your way back through a kind of series of decoder rings or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, that it really was designed, you know, as you say all the time, to activate the same experience as occurred to the person in that conversation. And that happens all the, all the time, you know, and so, you know, I want to learn to do that. But, I mean, how they did that is really quite, quite remarkable. And I guess another part of that for me is um, I can't imagine being in a version of this tradition that wouldn't invite innovation, you know. So, mm-hmm. so I'm not a teacher yet, you know, so for not a few hours. But, so whenever I can, if I want to do something weird in, in Tucson, you know, I try to email John and hope she might, you know, can I really do this? So like, oh, so Chava says yes, you know. So, so one, this was a, a, funny, a funny thing. So, so about two weeks or a week, I guess a week before you guys had the winter retreat in Taos, for some reason, I just wanted to bring in these two Wallace Stevens things, you know, just, just quickly. So it's it's two things from 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And the first one is, um, uh, among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. And then the last one is, um, a lot of weird stuff in between, but uh, it was evening all afternoon. It was snowing, and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. And it was a, a real, you know, usually we have, nine or ten people at our set. I think there were just five of us, you know. And so, actually, two people got there late, so we thought there would only be three of us. And uh, Jill, I think it was, let's, you know, let's bring the cushions right in together and really sit together. Then Ray and Carol, who were here uh, last night, you know, showed up, and so we made the circle a little bit wider. But we sat with those as two cones, and it was really sweet to sit really close together. People had a lot to say about them, and it was a very, very beautiful sit, and they turned out to be really deep, Cohen's, you know, I think, I mean, for me, certainly, and I think for other people also, you know, so that's, that's such a joy, you know, to be able to sort of just add a little bit or enrich the field or move it, move it sideways, and also to feel that, um, again, for all the differences that it really is participating, you know, it's not trying to be relevant, as you were saying, it's somehow there's something deep in the tradition that speaks to us and is fulfilled in those those moments. So the other part of that story is that uh, I was talking to Joan a little while after that, and um, you know there was the snow in in Taos, I guess, and our people got stuck on on the road up there, and so you gave that beautiful talk about the snow and, and Guanyin's cloak, you know. So so snow was sort of all over, and we didn't have much snow in Tucson, but we were <laughs> sitting with the snow cones, and then two of the people who sat with them went went up there, you know. So somewhere in there, I was thinking, <clears throat> you talk a lot about the... I'm trying to get back to the peach blossom series. Right? <laughs> so, so, so you talk a lot about the main fact in, in Cohen and our tradition. You know, just what's... If you can't figure out what else to do with the cone, you know, just the peach blossoms or just the dog and so on. And it's pretty clear that those images in the cones, in some, in some way, they've got a certain kind of metaphorical quality, you know. So if snow in a silver ball, there'll be some other things about whatever it is, permanence or impermanence or the vastness that that will embody, you know, and so so that's great. A, a thin version of it, which I think people sometimes come to Cohen work with, is to want to sort of pull out the abstraction and then you can get rid of the snow, you know, it's like, oh, we know about impermanence, so I don't need the snow anymore. And the experience, I think, of all of us sitting in that room working with the Wall of Stevens was so much in the other direction, you know, that you could just, it was so great just to sit with snow for an hour, you know. And I remember 
long time ago working with you on a cone, so we done one thing. I think there were rocks in it, you know, so it's like, right. and then you gave me another cone, so I said, well, you know, so for a year I got to think about, you know, be, be with rocks, and now I get to be with snow for, for a year, you know, what's, what's better than that? And you said that, you know, at the same time, isn't it, you know, that you're also learning about Tenny when you're doing that, you're exploring that. So, so my feeling is just, you know, I'll say one more thing. You, you talk in various places about the storehouse consciousness and that thing that's free of story, you know. And so much of that, the way you talk about it, is really almost just a sense record, you know. So, so awakening would be different if we lived in a world where there was no snow. Or, you know, yes. our souls would be different if we lived in a place where there is no trees, where there are no trees. So I think without giving up anything else we're doing <coughs> in a really important way, we can, just, we can just sit with the snow. We can just sit with the rocks, we can just sit with the trees, and other things will happen also. But I feel like that's a very, very deep uh, part of practice. Thank you. Beautifully said. May I tell a story on you? Sure. So I wanted to just add to Tenny's wonderful stories a, a, another... Um, completely contemporary koan event, which is um, Michael was um, w- working with a, a keeping company with a koan, which is a quote from um, Paul Eluard, and it is, um, there is another world, and it is inside this one. So off Michael went to Italy for Christmas, and on Christmas morning there was a message from him on my iPhone, and, and I turned it on to listen to it, and it was the sound of church bells in Rome on Christmas morning. And that was his response to this koan, there is another world, and it is inside this one. That's a complete koan experience. That's, that's everything right there. Okay. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.